Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Well, it's good to be with you. I invite you to please take your Bibles and go to James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. We continue through our, our series through the book of James, seeing again and again how this book is all about the practical, lived-out nature of Christianity and really how, how the engine of Christianity hums and what it sounds like when it's lived out and when it's working correctly. And today, James takes us to really one of the most vital parts of being a Christian, of the Christian life, and that's the body of Christ. That's the church, our relationships to one another, how we live together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And really, everything in this book's all connected to this. When he talks about taming the tongue, this isn't just for, you know, for a theory that we should control our speech, but it's how we speak to one another. When he talks about not showing partiality, it's towards one another. When he talks about having good works, it's to love our neighbor and to love one another. So on and on, all of these things are really leading up to how the body of Christ is interconnected and joined at the hip, as it were, to Christ and and to one another. And so let's begin reading in verse 13. And as we do every week, let's stand in honor of the reading of the word of Christ. I know you just sat down. You're like, oh, I'm standing up again. Yep, we are. I'm standing the whole time. So you you can join with me for a little bit. Verse 13, and the Spirit says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. Help us to reap a harvest of righteousness, of godliness lived out among your body and how we relate to one another under the banner of King Jesus. So help us now, Lord. Help us now, good shepherd. Would you guide your sheep by your word this day? And would your words that you've breathed out to us, that your spirit speaks to us this day, would it inform us, would it convict us, and would it help us to confess and to walk in that newness of life promised us in you? So help us now, Lord. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. You may may be seated. We, my family, we recently bought some new uh, patio furniture, some, some outdoor patio furniture. And I was hoping 
at Home Depot when I saw it. I was hoping that we could buy the already assembled version, but they would not let us. It wasn't happening because I'm not a very handy person. I'm not like ashamed to admit that. I'm, I'm more comfortable just slipping my shoes on than tying them. I know just enough about cars to put gas in them. I, I'm not a handy person. I'm not like looking for pity. It's just reality. My wife will say, Jeff's a good man and a good husband, but he is not a handy man. And it's true. And we bought these chairs that came in this massive box, incredibly heavy, and four chairs, fire pit. Each chair had six pieces, two armrests, two bottom support pieces, the back and, and the bottom piece. And I'm so glad my dad came over to help um, because if he hadn't come over to help, they would still be in the box this Lord's Day, they, they, which wouldn't have happened. And he came over and he helped, but it's really more like I handed him stuff. I got him water. I would, you know, get sweat off his forehead. Whatever he needed, I would do. And, and we finished assembling these chairs. And I'm looking at the first two that we did, and I can't, I'm looking at them in disbelief. The company's logo is upside down on the back of the chairs. And, I, and it's printed on the back, on the back piece, this big wrought iron back piece, and the logo's upside down. And I call my dad over, Dad, look at this. Can you believe this? Somebody messed up at the factory. They put the logos on upside down. And he says, oh, I can't believe it. This is crazy. And then, you know, I'm going to go take the box in the garage, get ready to throw it away. And I look at the picture on the box. Going, oh, boy. The company didn't mess up. We messed up. We put the backs on upside down. Logo face up at the top of the chair. We had the logo upside down on the back of the chair at the base. It was our fault. It wasn't some company's fault. And we just thought, you know what, who cares? Just leave them that way. No one's going to notice. But instead, we had to take all the chairs apart, fix them. And I, and I thought about that story this week as I read this passage. Because my gut instinct and my dad's gut instinct and our gut instinct that when something is wrong, something has not worked out the way we thought, we usually think someone else messed up. Someone at the factory messed up. Can you believe this? Not Mr. Handyman. Surely not me. And I bet I'm not the only one who understands this phenomenon. It's our natural human inclination to think that when something goes wrong, when something occurs the way it was not planned out, a misunderstanding occurs in a relationship, it's someone else's fault, not mine. Someone else messed this up, not, not me. That way of thinking, that way of operating, of always being on the defensive, is not a sign of wisdom. It is not a sign of godliness. It is a sign of worldliness. And in this passage, James shows us the impulse and the, the ways and the operating system of worldly wisdom, of ungodliness, of a wicked church culture. And then he shows us the marks of a wise church culture, of one that's informed by the gospel, of a kind of the pulse and life in a gospel culture. These wise relationships and then wicked relationships. And we use this phrase well, one that we've learned from Ray Orland about how gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. So gospel doctrine, these are all the truths of Christianity that are so precious to us and of the gospel. Truths of grace and redemption, forgiveness, mercy, and peace. That's gospel doctrine. Those things should create a gospel culture. What's a gospel culture? It's an environment. It's a church that's gracious to one another because of the doctrine of grace. It's a church culture that forgives one another because of the teaching and truth of forgiveness in Christ. 
It's a church culture that's merciful to one another because God has been so merciful to us. It's a church culture that strives for peace with one another and unity because now we've been united to Christ and we have peace with God because of Christ. So you see, those doctrines should create a gospel culture. And one of the greatest dangers in our church is not that one day we're gonna start teaching you're saved by works alone. And not that we're gonna start teaching that uh, you know, God will only forgive those who really try really hard in life. We're, we're not in danger of teaching those things. And really, no other church in our area is in danger of teaching heretical doctrine. Our great danger is betraying that doctrine by how we live. It's by betraying a doctrine of grace, by being ungracious towards one another, by betraying the doctrine of mercy, by being merciless towards each other. James's point is that Christianity is visible. This is the first thing we see really about the passage, that Christianity is visible. Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? So he's really asking, who's wise and godly in your bunch? Who thinks they got it all together? Stand up. Let's see who you are. So who are the wise people? Do you know how to spot a wise brother or sister in Christ? Who are they? We usually think wise people are the ones whose sentences are dripping with practical, immediately helpful information that they know how to decipher a situation. We think that's wisdom. That may be a part of wisdom, but we misunderstand wisdom if we reduce it down to just saying smart things. What does James say wisdom is? He continues. So who's wise and understanding among you? Here's how you know. By his good conduct. By his good conduct. Let him show. Show. It's visible. His works, visible. And the meekness of wisdom. So we misunderstand wisdom if we reduce it down to just saying smarty pants things. It's not only found in true sentences, but in a walked-out life. Christianity is visible. Conduct, works, humility. Guys, we have to, again, wrestle with this all the time, especially us in the Bible Belt. Christianity is more than cranial acknowledgments. It's detectable. It's lived out. It's gospel doctrine in gospel culture. Gospel believed and gospel lived. Like last week, speech good works, not showing partiality. Wisdom's not proven by smart sayings, but by godly living. I mean, I just love the phrase, by his good conduct. It doesn't get any more practical than that, more obvious. And this almost sounds like moralism. If we think we're gospel-centered and we understand grace and we get uncomfortable with a verse that says, you want to know if you're wise? Let me see your good conduct. If we hear that and go, well, he probably means, no, we're misunderstanding the the grace of God. We're misunderstanding what God's mercy does in our lives. We're misunderstanding what the crucified and risen Galilean brings about in his people by his good conduct. It's easy to sit back on a couch and talk theology. It's easy to write about theology on social media. It's easy to sit back in a missional community and talk Bible stories and talk about our different shades of spirituality. But James walks in and says, let me see your good conduct. Who's wise understanding among you? I can tell by your good conduct, by your behavior, by your life. And listen, if we have a theology of the resurrection and we don't live like we've been raised with Christ, we are fools. If we don't live like we've been 
crucified with Christ and raised to that newness of life with him. We, above all people, are most to be pitied. And our gospel, we've believed in vain if we don't live like we've been raised from the dead. So are you still short with your spouse? Chronically? You have anger problems? You drink too much? You lust after someone who is not your spouse? Are you insincere? Are you just plain rude? So we go on and on about these things in our life. Our good conduct shows the reality of gospel wisdom. Now, it's different than, man, these are things that I'm, I'm trying to repent of and I'm trying to, to crucify versus I don't, I don't care. Eh, it's just a struggle I have. No, the Bible says your conduct shows what's real. You will know them by their fruits. Our good conduct reveals the reality of gospel wisdom in our life, and it's done with a certain tone. Look at what he says at the end of verse 13. So by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom and humility. That's another way to translate this would just be gentleness. James is saying wise Christians have had, they've had the swagger gospeled out of them. Meekness now. There's no longer a whiff of big dealness about them. Wisdom, as Proverbs says, begins with the fear of the Lord. So because you know how great God is and that he is a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and forgiving transgression and iniquity for thousands and that, and that you, and that you only deserve his wrath, and that you are a great sinner worthy of eternal punishment in hell, but by the cross of Christ. That Jesus takes God's wrath for you on the cross. And now it is yours, salvation by faith alone. And you live by faith alone, in Christ alone, in his mercy, in his grace. And now the pride and the swagger and the big dealness has all been crucified. By his good conduct, let him show. Let him show what he really believes. That's shown by our conduct, James says. Godliness is tangible. It's detectable. I've never been hooked up to a lie detector. Maybe some of you have. You've got a cool testimony or something. We can video. A couple in the first service told me. I, I, I got stories. I've never been hooked up to one. I've seen it in the movies. You see it on TV. They're sweating. They're nervous, answering questions. And then that needle starts to move. Ink's going everywhere. Conduct, James says, in a sense, is a Christian lie detector. You can say anything. You can say you want to honor Jesus. You can say you want to follow Jesus. You can say that you believe. You can believe you're more humble than we know. But let's watch that needle move. How's that needle move throughout your life? What's really there? And in verses 14 through 16, James speaks of this ungodly life and the wicked church culture, and the wicked relationships that we give far too much into. This is a worldly culture contrasted with a gospel culture. Look at the worldly culture, verse 14. But if you have bitter, so you say you're wise and understanding, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So James sees the needle jumping. 
He says, you say you're wise, you say you're understanding, but you have bitter jealousy in your heart and selfish ambition. This should not be among God's people. Look, I get why. We should all get why unbelievers, why they're jealous. Of course they are. They don't think what they have is a gift from God. So they, they should be, according to their worldview, scratching and clawing and trying to trump each other and trying to outdo one another. So of course they're jealous when people succeed, when others have what they want. But Christians, why in heaven on earth would you be jealous of an unbeliever? Does eternal life not cut it for you? Does forgiveness of sins mean nothing to you at the end of the day? Does Jesus himself not satisfy? Additionally, does knowing that God is a good, good father to you, does that mean anything to you? So if you have bitter jealousy in your hearts, that's why James says you betray the truth. You betray the doctrine. See what James is getting at? You believe God is good to you, but then you're jealous. So you don't really believe God is good to you, and you are false to the truth. And that needle's jumping all over the page. And to be jealous about another believer is even worse. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice. Not to be jealous of those who rejoice. Why? For we are one body. And if we cannot be genuinely happy and excited for our brothers and sisters in Christ, what we're showing is we view that brother or sister as a prosthetic limb in the body of Christ and not the actual hands and feet of Christ. If we have bitter jealousy in our hearts toward other believers because of their looks, because of their marriage, because of material things, car, house, because of their job, their intelligence, well, I mean, whatever. We can create things to be envious of and jealous of. From Instagram hearts to Facebook likes. I mean, we can just we can be jealous about anything. If we can't rejoice with those who rejoice, we will never weep with those who weep. And the parasite in our hearts is selfish ambition. If you have, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Ambition can be a great thing, a godly thing, used for God's glory, used for the good of your neighbors. It can be a wonderful thing for the glory of God. It's an awesome thing to see in action. But you add selfish in the front. It's devastating. Chaos ensues. Selfish ambition ruins marriages. It ruins friendships. It ruins relationships. It ruins countries. There's, this word's only used four times in the New Testament, twice in James. And I read this past week in a commentary that the only occurrence of this word, selfish ambition, it's one Greek word, before James wrote it, before Paul wrote it, was used by Aristotle. And Aristotle was describing the narrow, partisan zeal of factional, greedy politicians of his own day. So when Aristotle used selfish ambition, he's thinking of the wicked, self-serving politicians of his day. I read that and thought, politics has not changed in 2,000 years. And neither has the human heart. So even when you lovingly critique a policy of a politician in the upcoming election, and then you are passive-aggressive with your wife, your spouse, to get your way, Aristotle says, you're just like that politician. 
James says you're just like that politician. Selfish ambition is your own personal politicking. It's being a lobbyist for your own agenda. And James says we must see these things in the world and see them among us and say it cannot be. We must see this for what it is. Look at verse 15. This bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not from God. Do not baptize these things. But what is it? It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. It gets worse and worse and worse. James wants to lay it out for us how wicked this is. It's earthly. Well, everyone on earth has it. It's unspiritual. Well, I need to grow in this. It's demonic. Oh. Organic isn't always good. Selfish ambition is organic. It just comes out of you. It springs up out of the soil of the human heart. This is organic compost, the result of death from the Garden of Eden. It's dirty. It's ungodly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. I love the way James speaks about our sin. It's sin. He doesn't call it growth points. He doesn't call it a weakness. He doesn't call it a personality quirk. If you told James, you're sitting with James at Starbucks, and you said, man, James, I just I struggle with being ambitious. I always want to be the best, and you know, I always want to be number one, and sometimes I hurt people in the process. James would just say, oh, so you like being like a demon. No, it's just something I'm growing it. No, you like to live like a demon. Is that what you're telling me? We need to feel the serrated edge of James's words. Don't sand it down. If you do, you'll probably never change. You can keep your personality quirk and join the demons in hell. Because we, as Bonhoeffer says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, we often look at things that we struggle with. We just say, oh, I'm struggling with that. But really, it's just disobedience. And it must be repented of. My friend Russell Moore told a story once where he was preaching about loving your enemies. The words of Christ, love your enemies. Love your neighbor. And a guy came up to him after the service, who was a vet, and said, I will never, ever love or forgive Japanese people. I never will. And Dr. Moore told him, it's fine. Hell's always an option for you. That seems harsh, doesn't it? That's the very point of the words of Christ. If you are my disciples, you will love those who hate you. You will bless those who persecute you. And if you are unwilling to forgive, you will not be forgiven. Does it mean we're saved by works? No, it means those who have been saved will love their enemies, will forgive. I've had it happen at Redeemer, preaching on the same passage. I had a guy come up and say, I'll never love Muslim people, ever. After what they did in 9-11 and what they keep doing, I'll never do it. I said, it's fine. You probably won't be in heaven then. Because only Christ's disciples are willing and eager to do what Christ says. It's those who are not his that say, I don't do that. That's why Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? We must feel the grit of James's words. Selfish ambition, it destroys relationships and especially local churches. Do you think more churches get ripped apart because of bad doctrine or because of selfish ambition? 
I've never heard of a church split because of a doctrinal statement. But I have heard of them split and die because of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and church members and in leaders because of factions and agendas and carpet color disputes. But listen, when selfish ambition exists, that's what occurs. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, where it is not eradicated, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Disorder in every vile practice. So think about Paul's letters. Think about First and Second Corinthians. There is disorder in every vile practice happening in this church. Think about the false teachers in Galatians. And then think about problems in your relationships. Think about the strain that's occurred in your marriage before or is there. There is a common denominator from First and Second Corinthians to the false teachers in Galatia to what James is saying and the strain in your marriage, and it is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, the, the striving to advance yourself at the expense of others, to always win, to always be number one, always wanting to be right, it will create disorder in your life, in your home, and in your relationships. Vile things will occur. Things that you never dreamed you would do, you will do because of selfish ambition. Things you never dreamed you would drink or you would smoke or you will inject, you will do because of selfish ambition. You'll yell, cuss, fight, compromise, cheat, all because of selfish ambition. 99% of the counseling and church discipline that we've seen occur at, at Redeemer, 99% of it has to do with marriages and relationships. So, beloved, die to self. More specifically, die to selfish ambition. As Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility and meekness, count others more significant than yourself. These are not suggestions. These are commands. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Count others more significant than yourself. So how do you not do things from selfish ambition? You count others more significant than yourself. Count others more important. Let each of you Look, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours in Christ. For this is what Christ did. He looked to our interest. He died for our selfish ambition. He died for our bitter jealousy. And now he says, you can have my mind. You can have my will among you. When we have Jesus, when Christ is living in us, empowering us, motivating us, we no longer have to live by the operating system of the world, but we can be controlled and filled by the Spirit of Christ himself. We can blaspheme the worldly culture, and we can receive the gospel culture that comes down from above. Look at verse 17. What does the gospel culture actually look like? What does gospel living, the wisdom of Christ, look like? Verse 17. But, so contrasting everything from verses 14 to 16, but the wisdom from above. Let's just pause there. What is that? What, what came from above? Not some ethereal kind of cloud of ethics, but Christ himself came from above. He descended from the right hand of the Father. And Christ is our wisdom, as Paul says in the Corinthian letters. So Christ came down from above, and what is he like? Verse 17 isn't just, here's some good things to try to live. Verse 17 is a description of the personality of Jesus himself. 
Who is Christ? He is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is out of the heart of God himself. Whatever you think God is like, verse 17 is true about God. We often project on God how we treat each other. We think God must be like this. That's false. Rather, the Bible says, this is what God is like, and I want you, God says, to project this towards one another. See, the culture of heaven is meant to be the culture of the church. Our local churches are to be embassies of heaven and the culture of the heavenly places. This is how God treats us. And first, it's pure. Nothing dirty or undignified about submitting ourselves to God's wisdom. The way of Christ and his wisdom, his life, his death, and his resurrection, his ethics are pure, and they're discipling us towards purity. And what does that create? Watch the dominoes fall. It's first pure, meaning this is the way. There's nothing dirty, nothing cheap, nothing sour in a gospel culture. But what's next? Then the dominoes fall, and then it's peaceable. Peaceable means we're not looking for fights. Sometimes people are just always just looking for something to complain about. Some of us are like, we're just not happy if we're not complaining. I was watching Jerry Seinfeld on Jimmy Fallon the other night. And he said, I, I feel like I'm the, one of the happiest people to be around, but I'm also the most irritated person in the world. It's like I'm enjoying life, but I'm constantly irritated by everything in life. And I really see it in all in his comedy, just seeing everything and making comments about everything. When you're peaceable, things just kind of begin to roll off. You're not looking to make fights with everything, but you're looking for unity. Not selfish ambition, but unifying ambition. Not compromising truth or morality, but maintaining gentleness. I think as Christians, we, we've got to learn that it's possible to hold principled convictions and not be a punk at the same time. This is something we all really struggle with. And as Russell Moore, it's a great phrase, that we must embody convictional kindness. Hold our principled convictions, but not be jerks at the same time. That we can still love our enemies. To love doesn't mean you agree with someone. It's the point of loving them. It's easy to love those you agree with. It's supernatural to love those you disagree with. It's supernatural to bless those who persecute you. And let's just pause for a second and think about how we interact with each other. Pure, peaceable. On Sunday mornings, I hope our conversations and I hope our relations with one another and our interactions are pure, peaceable, Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Then think about if you're in a small group, if you're in a missional community, does it match up? Is it pure and peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits? Now let's think about how you interact on social media. Commenting on Facebook or Twitter or blogs or whatever. Is your interaction pure and peaceable Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere? No. People are often, and I even fellow Christians, impure, fighting, harsh, name-calling, full of wrath and anger, critical and insincere. And listen, if Facebook you doesn't match up with faith in Jesus you, one of them must die. Maybe Facebook you needs to be crucified. A gospel culture 
is a group of people who've been crucified with Christ and raised to that new life in Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ, joined to the body of Christ. And so then we begin to see the life of Christ played out in us, not just in how we sing, but in how we type and how we talk and how we think. This verse should make up Redeemer Church. It should make up every local church. We should be a place that's striving for purity, for being peaceable, being gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and insincere. This is what every small group at Redeemer should be like. This is what every get trained class at Redeemer should be like. This is what every discipleship meeting, every conversation, this should begin to really embody our church because we've been embodied into Christ. Gentle. We're sinners in repair, every single one of us, if you're in Christ. Born again. And you see the gentleness of Christ in the Gospels. People who are caught in wicked sins and people who are great sinners, he's gentle with those, ready to give them mercy. Beloved, if, we, if we're not gentle when people confess their sins, we've yet to really understand the gospel. If we're scared and intimidated to confess our sins, that should say something about us. Open to reason means, I love that phrase, open to reason. It means, in a sense, we don't jump to conclusions about others. That we're open, ready, willing to hear. We give people the benefit of the doubt. This is what the gospel does. The gospel informs these things. It creates gentleness among us. Open to reason means we aren't locked into our own opinions and preferences. It means, you know, I might actually be wrong. To be open to reason from a human standpoint means... Maybe I have some learning to do. Maybe I've misunderstood this passage. Maybe I've been too critical of that person. Full of mercy. So describes our Lord. Full of mercy towards one another. And there's really only three options here about mercy. We all, all, three, we all fall in one of these three things. We are either full of wrath, we are either disinterested, or we are full of mercy. We are either full of wrath, we are either disinterested or we are full of mercy. There is no other option because God has been so merciful to you in the gospel. Because God has been so kind to you, saving you. Mercy should flow. Wanting to extend grace because it's been extended to you. Wanting to extend patience because it's been extended to you. That God has been so patient with you, how dare we be impatient with one another? Only a gospel culture informed by gospel doctrine can bring about such a thing. And so maybe, if you read through this and you think, I am none of these. And I really, I don't even want to be any of these. None of us live these perfectly. I, I certainly don't. But there's a desire in my heart to want to grow in them and to want to live them. If you sit here today and think, I'm not interested in that, especially some of these people, especially some of those people that I know, Maybe, maybe it'll be God's mercy for you to hear today. Maybe you don't know God. You have an idea about who God is. You know some stuff about God, but maybe you need to be saved. Maybe you need to receive his mercy for real. Move beyond just some prayer you prayed and some vague idea of spirituality, but actually seeing that risen Christ for who he is. 
and believe that he died for your sins and rose again, and he will forgive you of all of your sins, welcome you into his family, and empower you for that new life in Christ. And believers, to honor our great God and Savior, we must be gushing with mercy towards one another. And I love this last one we'll just think about. Sincere. Last word in verse 17. That wisdom that comes from above is sincere. This would be amazing for our church to be known for, that we're sincere. You know, there's a lot of things that unbelievers think about us. They think we're fake, and we've been guilty of that because we're trying to impress each other, trying to not show that we actually have sins in our life that must be confessed, must be crucified. So we're fake with one another, and of course, everybody can spot a phony. So the world thinks those Christians are fake. We've, been, we've all been guilty of that. They think we're hypocritical because we think we've got it all together. And of course, we don't. We're clinging to the one who has it all together. And we have this thin coat of spirituality on our lives. So we must resolve to be sincere people. And that we are sinners. But Christ is our redemption. Christ is changing us. Christ has saved us, and Christ will save us. That's what would be impressive to the world. The, the world is not impressed by, and like having a nice building, that doesn't give more credibility to the gospel. No one in the book of Acts is impressed by their, how loud they sing, or how great their music was. Churches are known. We just put our weight on all these wrong things. I guarantee you, no one that's hung over right now is impressed by our music. No one that was doing drugs this weekend will be impressed by our doctrinal statement. But what what will impress people? What will make them go, man, the gospel, these these Christians, they're pure. They're honest with each other. They're they're peaceable. They're gentle. They're, They're open to reason. They're full of mercy and good. They're sincere. This is what will give credibility to the gospel. As Jesus says, by the way, you love one another. They will know you are my disciples. You see the effect a gospel culture has? Look at verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is James saying? A harvest, when these things are lived out, a harvest of godliness comes in waves. And really, a church that sows together, reaps together. We try to make peace. We sow peace, a harvest of peace. You try to sow sincerity. When sincerity is sown, we reap a harvest of sincerity. When mercy is sown, a harvest of mercy comes. The devil wants you and me to think that self, the reward of selfish ambition outweighs the harvest of righteousness. Don't believe him. Look at what it got him. Look what selfish ambition got him. He became the devil. That's why it's earthly unspiritual, demonic. And without Jesus, that's what awaits us, hell. But Jesus died for our selfish ambition. Jesus died for our bitter jealousy. And now he offers us his life. That's why Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, which James is really riffing on, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peaceable, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, Blessed are those who are full of mercy, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
So maybe next time when something goes wrong or something's falling apart, we don't think someone messed up at the factory. We don't think it was that person in our mission community. We don't think it was our spouse. But rather, because of Christ, we are peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, and sincere. For this is what we have received from Christ. And this is how we will live like Christ. Let's pray together.